0: I don't want to sound pretentious with this, but I'm I'm probably going to come off. You probably will. Radio Drone. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am, obviously by my voice, very sick, Josh Hadley. With me as always is Pete from the North.
1: This time not sick and sounding clear as a bell.
0: I think you transferred it to me via the internet, you son of a
1: bitch. I think so. I, I didn't even think that was possible, but you know, there's always internet viruses can get internet flues now.
0: Cecil will not be joining us because he is caught in the middle of a giant nor'easter right now. He has no electricity, and I don't think doing this show is one of his highest priorities right now. So hopefully he'll be back next week. In the meantime, what you guys need to do is go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping just use the promo code drone at adamandeve.com. So Pete, tonight what I what I thought we'd look at is the beginning of directors careers. Because mm-hmm. especially when it comes to directors, how often is their first film their best film? And sometimes th- that does happen because I've got a couple on this list where I'm like, wow, it was all downhill after the first one. But <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, you have to make your mark. You know, most musicians their first album's not their best album. Most authors, their first one's the is time, not their best um, one.
1: It's, a lot of the time, it can be quite different, too, to what they eventually establish themselves as.
0: Exactly. You might have a different list. I've got a bunch of names here, and I just want to look at, we're going to just look at their first films. So mm-hmm. it, this does not count shorts or television work. For instance, first
1: feature film.
0: For instance, like when we get to George Romero, he used to work on the Mister Rogers' TV show and directed a bunch of commercials. Rob Zombie, oh, yeah, directed that was music more just videos.
1: working working as a director trying to get his foot in the door doesn't really count
0: i'm gonna i'm counting feature films because i know in a lot of these cases they already either worked on other movies in other departments or they actually did direct other things but directing a music video is way different than directing a feature film like the first one i've got up here is the 90s darling himself quentin tarantino I'm not gonna count my best friend's birthday, which is technically his first film, because it was Hmm. never completed nor never released. So be kind of shuffling my own rules off there for a minute. But I'm gonna go with (laughs) Reservoir Dogs. Leaving the plagiarism aside, (laughs) I think Dogs it it was a hit right out of the gate. I mean, Dogs showed it, it had his style, it had his. His wit with the dialogue, his his camera work, great acting, great cinematography. I think he came out of the gate swinging, again, leaving my best friend's birthday technically out of it.
1: I think with Tarantino, what's interesting is he sort of continued to be the same sort of filmmaker, even though he never stuck to the same genre. You can always feel that mark of Tarantino, the, the way they look, the way it's shot, at least when when he uses film. Um, And Reservoir Dogs really, I think, put that tarantino aesthetic stamp on uh, what we would continue to see and i i love that one it's classic i mean especially you, you've got the michael madsen scene cutting the ear off set to stuck in the middle with you i mean it's everything about it is is iconic and so quotable and so many great uh great memorable characters that one still stands as one of my favorite tarantino films right next to was his second one jackie brown
0: No, Jackie Brown was his his fourth. Oh, really? Well, well, okay, if you're counting his segment of Four Rooms as a film. Otherwise, Hmm. it was his third just Tarantino film.
1: I mean, those two... Reservoir and Jackie Brown are still still hold to this day as my two favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino movies because I mean he's always done the same sort of thing but I feel like he's there's been an added aesthetic to his movies it's almost like he's been kind of copying himself in a weird way even though he sort of copied other filmmakers but there was an understated quality about his earlier crime films like Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction those three I sort of consider to be a, a holy trinity of Tarantino because he was definitely really firing on on all cylinders and using all the ideas that he had and everything about them was were, were so memorable. Whereas now become like an like an over the top version of what his aesthetic used to be, even though it's still recognizably Tarantino. I, I sort of miss his sort of smaller, more grounded, down-to-earth sort of crime films. And and Reservoir Dogs is a perfect example of that.
0: Well, then let's look at another 90s indie darling, Kevin Smith. I like a lot of Kevin Smith's output. And I think Kevin Smith does, despite his own protestations to the contrary, he has a Kevin Smith style. I think Clerks absolutely cemented that not only do i think clerks is his best movie for a debut feature and remember all he'd done prior to this was a short documentary so
1: well yeah he had just gotten out of school pretty much when he had done clerks like the people that were in the first clerks movie were people he knew in high school particularly randall randall was the guy playing randall wasn't even an actor he was just uh he was in class classes with him and just thought he was funny
0: I don't want to sound pretentious with this, but I'm, I'm probably going to come off. You probably isn't? will. Yeah. <laughs> it, it has a very avant-garde feel to it. The black and white photography, the very set up the camera. I mean, it, almost documentary way he directed it. Whether he yeah. intended that or not, I, I, I can't speak to, but I
1: think, I think that was more circumstantial and due to like budgetary reasons. Like he was probably just using the cheapest film camera he could get his hands on and it ended up being black and white. He probably didn't really have proper camera mounts or dollies or anything like that he just used whatever he could and then it ended up it, whether it was intentional or not it did kind of have a, an avant-garde almost like art film look to it with this um really really modern raunchy dialogue coming from the characters so it was a is an interesting juxtaposition of, of styles especially for that time
0: and, and i mean this in a positive it has a very very indie feel to it I mean, it
1: certainly is indie. It absolutely is. Well, well, right,
0: <laughs> but, but, but I'm saying it feels like that, and that yeah. gives it a, a, a weird credibility. I, I don't know if that's the cinema snob in me or not, but it, it gives it a weird credibility because then you go and you look at Mallrats, and I do enjoy Mallrats, but Mallrats feels like a studio film. It doesn't it feel like, like an indie movie anymore, you
1: know? Was that, that was Dimension or Miramax? That was, was the Gramercy.
0: Company? Gramercy made
1: that. Ah. But yeah, it it feels like a big studio movie for sure. Like it feels more like – like Mallrats feels more like what Kevin Smith would – his films would eventually turn into, like the Jane Silent Bobs and the Dogmas movies like that but I feel like clerks definitely I, I agree it really had a sincerity it had a realness to it which I really enjoyed and I enjoy little little backs uh you know backstage stories about it like how originally Kevin Smith was meant to play the Randall character which is why he gave him all the best lines and he realized that he couldn't act so he made himself silent Bob which is actually pretty humble if you think about it as a as a director he decided to go with the the best person for those lines and I, I think through that, he ended up making Randall Graves. Like, in my opinion, Randall Graves is the best character in that whole, what does he call it, the view-askew universe. Like, I'm always... Uh, uh, I, I,
0: I'm, I'm a little 50-50 on Randall. While he gets all the best laughs and the best lines, mm. he l- assuming he's a, ter- a real person, he's a terrible human being who you would never want to interact
1: with. Well, he, it's, he's, it's strange with Randall. He seems really aloof about uh, a lot of his weird quirks and and flaws like even in the first movie he admits that he doesn't know anything about women when he's trying to talk to dante's uh dante's ex uh, about stuff and he just kind of figures being brutally honest about what's going on is the best way to do it it's almost it's almost endearing how unaware he is about his kind of weirdness and uh sort of I guess lack of tact as a person like he he's always sort of the most uh, to me he's the most enjoy entertaining character to watch because you never really know what he's gonna do and at the same time he has this really dry sense of humor about him which I, I think he has more staying power as a character for me than like Jay and Silent Bob do where you got Jay constantly making drug and dick jokes you know all the time and just being really bombastic which I think is why they work so much better as side characters. And whereas like Randall and Dante are better as main as leads because there's there's more of a dry humor, more of a real humor um, about their characters. Even if Randall is a guy you'd never hang out with, I mean, who cares about that anyway? It's it's a movie.
0: I don't know if you're a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson or not. Paul Thomas Anderson has a very Paul Thomas Anderson style to him. Yes, he does. Now he he directed two shorts before this, which I'm leaving off as we discussed. When you look at Hard Eight. From 1996, you can kind of see parts of it really don't feel like a Paul Thomas Anderson film, but there are other parts where you're like, "Man, he's really coming into his style in this." While Heart when, Eight when I don't. You, when did that one come out? 96. It's the one with Samuel L. Jackson and Gwyneth Paltrow.
1: Oh, that's I, I don't think I don't even think I ever saw that one. The first. Paul Thomas Sanderson movie I ever saw was Boogie Nights. Which would be the second film. That came year, out the year after.
0: That's what I'm kind of trying to get at. Well, Boogie Nights was his, what really put him on the map.
1: It is, kind yeah.
0: Of, it's kind of funny when you go back and watch Hard Eight. You can see his style emerging. So while I, I won't mm-hmm. say Hard Eight was a, was a grand slam right out of the gate as a first film. It's mm-hmm. not a bad first film. We just know he did way better
1: later. Well, I need to check this one out. It's one I've been meaning to see just because I do really like Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. I love uh, John C. Riley as well. Yeah, I need to check this one out because Boogie Nights is kind of the Paul Thomas Anderson movie for me. Like, I've always really, really loved that one and the overall vibe of it and the way it captured the sort of 70s aesthetic and the early 80s aesthetic. And I, I love the his movies eventually hit this very somber tone. You, you can feel like a, a level of genuine depression with some of the characters, which I think he captures better than a lot of um, a lot of filmmakers do. That happens in a lot of his movies. It eventually hits that kind of decline point for the characters where you see them at their lowest and it always feels very genuine. I, I, I consider that to be sort of one of his main traits as a, as a filmmaker. He's able to capture that that sort of raw, downtrodden emotion in, in his characters. He
0: made Jesse's girl and sister Christian fucking creepy.
1: Yes, he did.
0: <laughs> that takes effort, man. That takes That's skill. An amazing
1: scene. Oh my god. Yeah, he uses music really, really well. Whether it's, um, whether it's music composed for the film or something that he's chosen to juxtaposo- juxta- god, I hate using that word. To sort of mesh with the scene. Um, he- he's very good at, at using, using a song. Like Jesse's girl making it very unnerving. Dirk Diggler and his buddies are, are trying to sell baking powder to, to a huge, uh, drug lord who's dancing Alfred around Molita. doing- doing heroin carrying a gun listening to Jesse's girl like it's a very tense scene with an otherwise really upbeat song but it completely changes the the gravity of that song when you put it in the context of that scene
0: but th- but that's boogie nights Hard Eight yeah. is a film that should be checked out. Like I said, it's not a great film. It's got problems, and he's very open about, yeah, you know, this movie has problems, but he also had interference from the producers. I mean, hell, Hard Eight's not even the title he wanted. The main mm. character is named Sidney, and that was supposed to be the title. But they found that late 90s cable, m- more people would watch movies with the word hard in the title. So uh-huh. they insist, and Hard Eight is actually a term that's used over and over in the movie. It, that is a plot point. But but he absolutely did not want it called hard eight.
1: It was no. more of a more of a marketing thing, I guess. It makes sense because that was sort of the era of HBO going on its rise and I guess people wanted to on TV wanted to see things with more of an edge, more of a hardness to it. So it makes sense it was a buzzword.
0: Then let's go to one of the most maligned directors, and he did this to himself, George Lucas. Now, again, he made tons of short films. He made almost nine short films before his debut. I think THX 1138 was a hell of a debut for a feature it had a visually unique style i mean the story you know it was early 70s it was it was what it was it wasn't a great story but i think thx 1138 showed a vision of why everyone thought george lucas was so damn good in the late 70s or through the early 70s through the late 70s and then of course he went and pissed all that away as we know but <laughs> thx 1138 is very groundbreaking for how low budget it was that it got made i i honestly can't believe a you know because I mean Warner Brothers I think it was Warner Brothers released it mm. I'm honestly surprised they released the movie honestly
1: that's a really great movie um, I often forget that it's even George Lucas because it doesn't feel like Star Wars at all it feels like a really um, I know that's sort of what he's known for he's known for that aesthetic but with that, with THX 1138, it's very, like, bleak, dystopian kind of stuff. It, it's in this very streamlined future. Uh, you, you got Robert Duvall amazing in it. You got those weird cops in it or those uh, authoritarian figures that were clearly eventually the basis for the T-1000, I would say. Even the name of the, the movie kind of sounds like T-1000. Um I think that's one that really inspired um, a lot of contemporary science fiction a lot of that sort of bleak, hopeless, future of of being controlled by by machines and authoritarian figures and you know trying to escape from it i think that's a really really good one a really good example of, of that sort of dystopian science fiction cinema and it's honestly kind of surprising that george lucas is the one that gave it to us
0: i also think it has a, a an almost arresting visual style with the stark white background stark yeah white costumes it gives it a and I, i'm going to use this word again it gives it a very avant-garde feel it feels very artistic but really the basis of the movie is it's kind of an action movie well i mean yeah I mean, you know, there are action it's, it's beats sort of, it's a love it's an story, understated
1: but. it's it's an understated action movie like it's not balls to the wall explosions everywhere but it is meant to be a science fiction action film and i think the all the all the All the really bright, uh, whites used in the movie is almost makes it, um, dates it kind of to this day because that sort of look is really popular right now. That sort of minimalist look that companies like Apple are using. Like it almost feels like. That's the future that we're going into. This, this very stripped of all creativity kind of look. And I think that movie with that aesthetic makes it stand up, stand the test of time and still, um, hold its ground, uh, visually because it, it does fit in with, with the type of, um, the type of looks that are popular right now, which is that very minimalist look. So I think that makes that movie, I, I think it still makes THX 1138 stand up today.
0: What about now? What about James Cameron? This is a this one might go into a technicality because oh he
1: directed Piranha too I don't give a f- what he says
0: a, exactly I was gonna say you know Avadato Asenitis says Cameron directed Piranha too Lance he Henderson did you can says, tell
1: you can tell his color palette is in there his like camera work is in there his shots he are claims, there
0: but he claims he was fired after only two weeks and he never shot the bulk of that movie bullshit I, yeah exactly I call bullshit I think Piranha two and you know what. I genuinely like Piranha
1: 2. Me too! And it's, it's for like 80% of that is the way the movie looks because it's clearly shot by James Cameron. All of his blues and reds and oranges are there. You know, the, his, his, uh, style of tension, uh, brought to a scene is there. I mean, sure. Yeah, it's it's a B movie about flying killer fish, but it's a damn well directed one, and he certainly directed it. I mean, he kind of became a snob in his older years. You know, he's saying you know 3D movies are are the death of cinema, and there's a lot of hypocrisy to what he says because he'll be trashing 3D movies one minute, then he'll be making Terminator 2 3D the next, then he'll be re-releasing Terminator 2 in 3D in theaters after he just took shit on Piranha 3D and three double D. He's really became kind of an asshole. Throughout the years but he directed a damn good flying fish movie and i i think he should be proud of it
0: the strange thing with piranha 2 and james cameron is how he fluctuates sometimes like in his book dreaming aloud He's very open about it, and he even jokes about it's probably the best flying, you know, flying killer fish movie ever made. It is, you know, but you know he'll joke about it, and then he'll be like, "Oh well, I barely worked on that movie," you know, and and then he'll joke about, and then so it seems like he, it seems like he's wrestling with himself. Whether he wants to accept Piranha 2 as part of his, his filmography or not. And I- Which is do. so
1: stupid considering the magnitude of filmmaker that he became. It's like, who cares? Why be embarrassed about that? You know, a man of his age shouldn't be embarrassed by things like that. It's such a sophomoric attitude for a, for a man with such tenure as a filmmaker. It's, you almost feel secondhand embarrassment.
0: You can, even though he did not write the screenplay, although that's up for debate because the screenplay for Piranha 2, The Spawning, is credited to H.A. Milton, Mm. a man that does not exist. (laughs) So Avadito Asinaitis claims he wrote it. There are other people that claim that Cameron heavily rewrote it, and that's Mm. why a pseudonym was used. And if that's true, you can see, like... The strong female protagonist who's yeah. gonna take no crap, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got Ripley in Aliens there. You've got Sarah Connor in Terminator 2 there. Mm-hmm. You can see the James Cameron-isms even in the script which he may or may not have written.
1: E- easily the Lance Henriksen character, you can see a lot of Cameron's influence in that. The, the, the undercover agent dude feels like a Cameron character. Like it does, it, overall it feels like a Cameron movie. There's no way he can deny this. There's no way.
0: Also, the piranha breaking out of the woman's chest, and mm. then he'd go on to direct Aliens? Yeah, come he on. certainly did. <laughs> you just go, come on. I mean, I get it. You came from Roger Corman, but, man, that was intentional, and you know it
1: was. It was. And his his movies felt very Corman-esque till he hit his stride, like you had Piranha 2. You had Terminator still felt very Corman. Terminator. Like, we know the world he came from. And, and there's no denying it. The history, you can't deny history, especially when it's on film. When you can go back and watch it and see the evidence of where you come from, why pretend like you didn't do it?
0: But then what about uh, John Carpenter? Now, mm. again, he had a whole bunch of short films, including uh, one that he won a freaking Oscar for. He had a bunch of short films, but then his debut of Dark Star in 1974. While it might not have been a big hit, I think it was a solid movie. T- to me, Dark Star it, it has. I mean, you can definitely see Dan O'Bannon's influence since he was a co-producer and the screenwriter. When you look at Dark Star, you can see a lot of John Carpenter's style starting to emerge. Now, the the, the biggest problem Dark Star has is it's padded beyond belief, and the it's reason it's a is,
1: little little slow for sure.
0: Well, but the reason for that is that it was originally, I think, a 50-minute short. And you can kind of
1: see that. You can sort of up, see it in the budget. Like, it's very, like, micro-budget, which which would go on to be John Carpenter's style for a while, but that one's, like, really micro-budget. They're literally wearing vacuum cleaners budget.
0: on their backs as as spacesuits, dude. <laughs> they're wearing painted vacuum cleaners for, like, the, the hoses going to the helmets and stuff.
1: Yeah, that, that movie costs, like, 30 bucks, I'm sure.
0: But the, the thing is, a movie producer saw that, and wanted to release it.
1: Because it is. It's a cool little movie, even though it has some pacing flaws. It's really entertaining to watch, especially for, like, the early works of someone like John Carpenter to see a lot of his traits in there in the, the early days, which there are a lot of. A lot of his... His style and in color, and a lot of his character traits are there. Um, I think it's definitely one that needs to be checked out for any, any John Carpenter fan that hasn't, hasn't seen it yet. And yet yeah, it's got some cool early Dan O'Bannon stuff too, you know, in the ship designs and, and stuff like that. It's, it's definitely an interesting, quirky little flick to watch, even if it does feel a little long in the tooth. You you can tell it was meant to probably be a lot shorter and they stretched it out to have a, a feature release.
0: Yeah, because the the movie producer actually gave them more money to get it up to, I think it was an hour 20. Mm-hmm. And that's where you can just be like, oh my God, get on with it at some point. Yeah, part.
1: it should have been 40 to 50 minutes. That that would have uh, perfectly tightened it up, I think.
0: I, I also think, you know, this is more O'Bannon than it is Carpenter. I also think, It it just has a hilarious, it has a hilariously dark tone to it. Like, they're on this, like, 30-year space mission with no chance of resupplies. But due to an accident, their entire toilet paper supply was was eradicated. You go, yeah, that's going to become a problem after a while, isn't it? Yeah, it it will. You know, that's the kind of dark Dan O'Bannon humor I I, kind of miss in films today.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's really funny.
0: Well, how about uh, David Cronenberg? Cronenberg, this one again is iffy, because Crimes of the Future and Stereo titled 3B of a CAEE Educational Mosaic, that's the title, are technically his first films, but... They're only an hour long, so I don't mm. know if I would still consider both of those shorts. That'd and then more he did a short he, film, yeah. And then he did a bunch of TV movies. So again, I don't know if I want to consider Tourette's or Letters from Michelangelo or Jim Ritchie, sculptor as David Cronenberg films. I'm actually. Well, just, he did a I, lot of
1: like teleplays and TV shorts and stuff. Isn't his first movie would technically be Shivers, wouldn't it?
0: Right, which is which is where I'm like that. And and honestly, having seen some of these others, yeah, Crimes of the Future and Stereo. And and all that, they, they do feel like David Cronenberg. Shivers really cements the David Cronenberg style. I'd say style.
1: definitely Shivers and Rabid would count as like his first features.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go with Shivers for David Cronenberg, even though, like I said, technically he had some TV movies. Like I said, while Stereo and Crimes of the Future are not considered shorts, I don't consider hour-long films to actually be films at this point. I think Cronenberg. If you look at Shivers now, if you go back and look at it, you can see David Cronenberg's style all over. Oh, that. absolutely! You can see where how David Cronenberg became David Cronenberg.
1: Well, it's got the the body horror element with the the whole infection plot. There, there's the whole um, moral ambigu- ambiguity to it. You know, people kind of losing themselves to. To sex and, and, um, moral corruption and, and things like that. And just the overall grimy, griminess of the movie that would stay with, um, with a lot of the Cronenberg movies, like all the way up to movies like The Fly. They still had that sort of, they almost looked and felt like, um, exploitation films. Um, and I think Shivers kind of does count as one. It has that sort of Z grade grindhouse kind of style to it. And even the plot. You know, it's an infection that turns people into sex-crazed lunatics. Like, that's absolutely something you would see at, like, a a drive-in. But it's still very much Cronenberg. It has that that body horror element to it that we would come to be so adjusted to from his movies. It would be just second nature later on, but it it definitely established a lot of the Cronenberg tropes that we would uh, begin to see later on.
0: Arguably making the greatest horror film of all time is your first film, George Romero, Night of the Living Dead. Talk about a home run right out of the gate.
1: That's absolute luck for sure. I don't know if he's just that good (laughs) or if he's that lucky.
0: So, you know, he worked on Mr. Rogers and he did TV commercials. In that. It's just weird when you go, yeah, George Romero the Night of the Living Dead guy used to work on the Mr. Rogers show.
1: That's amazing.
0: Night of the Living Dead, again, it has such a style to it. Yes, I know there are mistakes in it and whatnot, but Night of the Living Dead, talk about a movie that was, I mean, he invented a whole new genre of film. He in did. I mean
1: zombie zombie movies technically existed before that one, but I think he really established the genre with that. Like that's the movie that everybody else tried to be. And along with his other dead movies like Dawn and, and Day and even Land, I think people were trying to mimic his style of, of zombie films, and they still are to this day. I mean, there's still references to George Romero stuff in The Walking Dead and other contemporary zombie movies that that come out. I, I think he was definitely a genre. Genre establisher with that one and he that being his first film that's that's impressive he started with a vision and he continued on with it
0: well what about when you come out of the gate with your first film and it becomes the greatest film of all time a lot of people have said that orson wells used everything he had on citizen kane and that's why he i disagree with this but a lot of people are like he blew his whole wad in 1941 and was never able to recapture the magic of Kane. I, di- I, I disagree with that. When you come out of the gate and you make the greatest film of all time, there's nowhere to go but
1: down, isn't there? Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I definitely appreciate Citizen Kane for what it is. Um, I think it's really impressive that to make that your first movie, That's the guy obviously deserves a lot of praise. I mean, I, I think he still went on to make good stuff. I don't think that Citizen, Citizen Kane is his greatest movie. And I, I don't think it's... I also don't think it's the best movie of all time either. I I do really like it. I do really appreciate what it did for cinema and obviously what it did for him as a filmmaker. But I I think it's it's not fair – to hold it over his head like that and claim that it's his his greatest uh, achievement or whatever. It's definitely something that he deserves high praise for to go full-on balls to the wall with a movie like that and go, go so hard that your first movie ends up being considered the greatest movie ever made. I mean, that's obviously, that's impressive. That's the only thing you can say about that is that it's impressive.
0: What about when your first movie is the only movie you intended to make and then you go on to make about 200 more? <laughs> Albert Pune with The Sword and the Sorcerer. When I interviewed him for Fangoria about Radioactive Dreams, he said everything after Sword and the Sorcerer was gravy. He set out to make Sword and the Sorcerer, and that was the only film he had in his head. And if he got to make this, he would die happy. (laughs) And Sword and the Sorcerer, yes, it's a pure exploitation film. It's a really good one.
1: And what's interesting about that one is it's not even the... The aesthetic that we would be knowing Albert Pune for. I mean, he's more of a cyberpunk kind of guy, so it's it's interesting that a sword and sorcery fantasy type movie is is the first thing that he makes and does it really really well. Um, I think Albert Pune is definitely underrated as a, as a filmmaker. I've always really enjoyed his films. I think they've always had a really great style to them. A, a lot of the, especially a lot of the science fiction ones, feel like they could belong in like the t- the the 2000 AD universe, but sort of the sorcerer is a that's a fun one as well and it's interesting to see his startings of a filmmaker and how different his movies would actually become i think just for the the novelty factor of that alone makes that movie really great to watch
0: also it has a three-bladed sword that shoots two of its blades yeah (laughs) so come on you can't just you know leave that aside
1: that's awesome yeah
0: well what about then coming from the world of music videos Someone like Rob Zombie, where Mm. he directed lots of music videos, and then he comes out with House of a Thousand Corpses. Now, as I've talked about on our Rob Zombie retrospective, I think the movie is a piece of shit. But the, the, the visual style, you can see the way he chooses to edit, camera angles, the production design. I like his direction in the movie, even if the movie's a piece of shit. Does that make sense?
1: It does, and I like House of a Thousand Corpses, but I loved Devil's Rejects. I feel like he definitely expanded on Devil's what he Rejects was Devil's Rejects to feels do.
0: totally different than House, though. It does. It does.
1: Um, I, I think it really expanded on the on the concept and did it so much better than the House of a Thousand Corpses did. Um, even though I like both of them, they they completely feel like completely different films. Like they don't really feel like sequels to one another. Like the color palettes are different, even though they are a lot of the same characters. They act quite differently and look pretty. Editing
0: is totally different.
1: Yeah. Everything about it is different. I I think, um, I wish he would have continued down the same road as he did with uh, *Devil's Rejects*. I mean, I think that's still still his best movie and might continue to be his best movie. But I I like *House of a Thousand Corpses* as well. I feel like it deserves it deserves some praise, especially for a guy who was uh, a musician and you know directed some of his own music videos. Obviously, he was doing that to kind of get some practice because he's obviously he's a big movie guy. He loves like old old school horror movies and, and stuff like that. So he's probably always wanted to make one, and I'm glad that he did. I'm glad that he at least gave us House of One Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, even though not a fan of his, of his Halloween stuff, and I haven't really been a fan of any of the other output he's, um, he's put out. But you know what? That's my opinion. And, uh, his movies have done well. They've been received well by certain horror fans, and I really consider Devil's Rejects to be one of the best horror exploitation films of all time. So I'm still gonna give the guy credit, even if I don't like a lot of his other works.
0: But when you look at House of A Thousand Corpses, it does have a very music video. Video quality. Oh, it not does. Just, not just in the editing, but the whole style feels like a ninety-minute Texas Chainsaw Massacre music video, doesn't yeah.
1: it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Like like a something that would be in the style of toby hooper's texas chainsaw massacre with like a song about some Leatherface character cannibal family it it does feel like that's what would be sort of playing in the background and that that gives the movie an interesting quality and i really love his his use of of color in that one I, i don't think he's ever used color to that that really gorgeous gel cap kind of look, like it really looked, um, almost looked Argento in some scenes. I think the, what was that one that he made that was like a, a redneck version of Running Man? Was that 21? 31. Thirty one. He used, um, there was some color, some nice color usage to that one, just if only you could see the shots, because everything was so shaky cam, quick cut bullshit, but House of a Thousand Corpses had some nice lingering shots, and you can really see fabulous use of uh, color in that one. I think if I were to to give that movie the the biggest amount of praise, it would be for his use of color. I love the color palette in House of a Thousand Corpses.
0: Well, speaking about color and a music video style, what about Richard Stanley? Mm. I mean, coming out with hardware, again, he'd done music videos and things like Shorts and things like that prior But hardware being his first feature That also, and again I mean this in a positive way That also really feels like A 90 minute long music video
1: Oh it does, you you could easily Cut it to any given like ministry song Or something and it would work perfectly
0: Yeah, and, and I think hardware It's been been more highly regarded In recent years mm-hmm. But my god was that movie savaged when it came out in 1990 So I, I don't necessarily, as much as we love it I don't necessarily say that was a a hit out of the gate you know that was a grand slam for him because that did not work and it didn't do anything for his career in 1990
1: Unfortunately not. No, it was, uh, it was not the kind of movie critics were wanting to see. It was definitely more, more of a film catered to the, the people who like sort of weird low budget science fiction and, and 2000 AD comics. I mean, that's when it was, it was based on a, on a 2000 AD short, short run. Um, so I think it was made more for people like that, which unfortunately was the minority at the time. It wasn't a majority audience kind of thing, but I'm really happy that it got some recognition over the years and it became sort of more of a cult classic uh because it deserves it it's it's a gorgeous looking film it's a cool film really really great use of uh of color he was inspired by he wanted to have an argento style to it and i think went went balls to the wall with it and really gave us a great looking film really really great to watch really nicely paced you know great practical effects like it, it, built, it it's it's set in the the 2000 AD judge dread universe i mean that's just an awesome movie and it, it's it's a shame that it didn't get the the recognition that that it should have got uh, when it came out
0: one quick note about hardware i showed this to my girlfriend a few months ago she'd never seen the movie before and mm. we're watching the blu-ray um the blu-ray revealed a little too much you can totally see dylan mcdermott wearing underwear during the sex scene when there's when they're screwing and i'm like <laughs> oh even the dvd i can't see that but the blu-ray is so crystal clear i can see his underwear like well that kills some of the mood Oops. Some of this stuff's not meant to be seen in HD, people. Yeah. What about somebody who, uh, you know, he's been garbage for years, but used to be a genius like Ridley Scott? Again, you know, he did TV work and short films, so we're not counting those. Alien was not his first film. It was a boring period drama about fencing called The Duelists. (laughs) I remember seeing this movie because the cover was like, you know, from the director of Alien and Blade Runner. And I'm like, oh, shit, cool. And I'm like, oh, my God. God,
1: this is Dangerous Liaisons type bad, man. The only thing I know about the, the duelists, really, is that uh, they ended up using some of Jerry Goldsmith's score from it for Alien because they didn't really like Ridley, for whatever reason, didn't enjoy what Jerry did for the movie and decided to like re reuse different music, and that's why Jerry Goldsmith held a grudge until he died. So that's that's really all I know about when it comes to the duelist is that Ridley Scott was a prick and fucked Jerry Goldsmith over. But I've never actually seen the movie.
0: I remember renting it on VHS and just being bored out of my mind.
1: <laughs> it sounds pretty fing boring.
0: What about then with uh murderer John Landis and his first film? Cause a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I remember him Animal House, right? Well you go, no, before that was Kentucky Fried Movie, and before that was Schlock. Strangely enough feels like the most John Landis thing John Landis has ever done. And I I know how weird that sounds because his style is cemented with like Animal House, Blues Brothers, Werewolf in London, etc. But Schlock, it feels like the most honest film he made. Does that make sense?
1: I don't think I've seen Schlock. Is it like a little, is it like a monster movie?
0: It's a man in a gorilla costume running around like swatting toy helicopters out of the air.
1: Is it? uh, Yeah, I don't think I've seen this one.
0: Okay, well, then we'll was move Was it on known since.
1: as the Banana Monster? Yes. I think I saw it once, or at least parts of it. I had no idea it was John Landis.
0: Yep, that's John Landis, pre-Kentucky <laughs> Pride movie. What about one of the biggest names in Hollywood, Martin Scorsese? To a degree, even Roger Corman perpetuates this myth. A lot of people say Scorsese's first film was Roger Corman's boxcar Bertha. Even, huh. Roger, Cor- even Roger Corman says, you know, I gave Martin Scorsese his his start. Well, he actually made a feature of black and white very avant-garde, there I use the word again, very avant-garde film with Harvey Keitel in 1967 called Who's That Knocking on My Door. So, Boxcar Bertha was not his first.
1: No, now, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say so. No, he he's done a couple little little shorts there. And of course, the the first thing he'd make would be with Harvey Keitel.
0: Because, of course.
1: And, oh, yeah. and it's also I mean, I think the- his – technically, like I would say – like Boxcar Bertha is I think a movie he just sort of – made uh to make a movie. It it feels a lot more like a Roger Corman drive-in kind of thing, even though it does have that sort of true crime crime thriller vibe to it. I would say Scorsese's if you really want to say, you know, what cemented him as a filmmaker, it's it's that one. It's Who's That Knocking At My Door? And Mean Streets. Like those are that's early Scorsese. That's what really built him as a as a director. It's those two. Boxcar Bertha doesn't even really feel like a Scorsese movie, but Mean Streets and Who's That Knocking At My Door absolutely Absolutely do.
0: What about Joe Dante with Hollywood Boulevard? Now, technically, he only he co-directed it, so I don't know if, if you want to throw a technicality on that one.
1: Uh, I don't know if I would really count that. If it's co-directing, I would rather if uh, like I would consider it more uh, a directorial debut if they really get their their all their feet in the their feet entirely into the water, so to speak, with the film.
0: Okay, well then, if if we're not going to go with Hollywood Boulevard, then Joe Dante's would be Piranha. And Absolutely. That one, I, I would agree he, with that. Because because that one's pure Dante. But Hollywood Boulevard, he co-directed it with Alan Arkish. Piranha, man, just, again, coming out of the gate. And this one, you know roger corman movie piranha is a great film
1: it is and it's 100 percent dante too like that's that would set the stage for you know other sort of creature monster horror films that he would make like howling and gremlins i mean it, it's perfect it's it's absolutely an, an an establishing film for joe dante as a as a filmmaker as a director and it's it's such a great fun really well-paced movie. It shows the the kind of pace that he has as a as a filmmaker even even making something that was as early as, you know, 1978, which would technically be that would be his second-ish movie as we said, you know, Hollywood Boulevard is co-directing, but Piranha as a full-fledged director, he really showed his uh his chops. As a, as a filmmaker, a guy who can make, you know, sort of weird creature movies or more, more character driven, driven films or more sort of political satire kind of stuff. Like he, he really showed what kind of a filmmaker he can be truly with uh, something like Piranha. And I, I think that's a brilliant one. It's such a, such a great way to establish a filmmaker with a movie like that. It's funny because I'm sure Joe Dante is proud of that one. I'm sure he talks of he he would talk about that one in a in a way that he's not you know pretending that he didn't make it. It's it's a funny little game of opposites with him and James Cameron, who both worked with Corman.
0: Well, speaking of Dante, then you mentioned Gremlins. What about Steven Spielberg? Now, again, he did a bunch of TV work, you know, Night Gallery episodes, Marcus Welby episodes, Columbo episodes, things like that, mm. as well as TV movies like Savage and Duel. But his first feature would be the Sugarland Express. You know, a lot of people again. Jaws was Spielberg out of the gate. No, no, it wasn't. And I, I remember catching Sugarland Express. Uh, this is the one with uh, Goldie Hawn. I remember catching this on cable in the late nineties, kind of going, "The fuck is this? It, it's like a road <laughs> movie." And then, and then I'm like, "Wait a minute, Spielberg? This does not feel like Spielberg, man." And I don't uh, know if that's good or bad.
1: I don't know if I've even seen that one, Sugarland Express.
0: Sugarland Express.
1: No, I haven't seen that one. Did he make that one right before before Jaws?
0: Yeah, I'm reading the IMDb plot synopsis. Quote: A woman attempts to reunite her family by helping her husband escape prison and together kidnapping their son. But Mm. things don't go as planned. Or uh, things don't go as planned when they are forced to take a police hostage
1: on the road. Unquote. No, I've never seen that.
0: Like I said, I I caught it on cable one day and was like, huh. You know, I just thought it was an interesting 70s grindhousey road movie, and then to find out. Steven Spielberg directed this. It's okay, funny, a then. lot
1: of a lot of filmmakers seem to seem to start with that kind of stuff, like more drive-in, grindhouse, exploitation type stuff. You know, even even Wes Craven started out with that kind of stuff.
0: I was actually just going to go to Wes Craven. As I thought. Yes. So like when you go to Wes Craven, you kind of ask yourself, okay, this is the one where it gets it doesn't technically get Sticky, no pun intended. Last House on the left would be his first directing effort that he would put his name on. Remember, he would direct hardcore porn films as Abe Snake before that. I don't know if you want to consider the hardcore porns, so I don't know if in this case, Last House on the Left would be his first
1: film. I'd, I'd go with Last House on the Left as it's his first feature. I mean, the, the hardcore porn stuff was likely just, you know, him trying to get by, get his foot in the door kind of thing. Pay the bills. More of a pay the bills kind of job. Whereas Last House on the Left is him really leaving his mark as a filmmaker, as a an, as an establishing film it's more that it's more hills have eyes definitely i would i would consider last house on the left because I, I think i would you, you could probably consider porn as more short film tv movie category um so i'd say last house on the left would count as his first technical film especially since he wasn't even doing the porn using his real name
0: well would you say the same thing then with william lustig who billy Bag? <laughs> ended up directing Hot Honey and the Violation of Claudia, or or as or Maniac, Bill Lustig's first film.
1: I would say Maniac. Let's let's go with Maniac.
0: If we're we're leaving Hot Honey and the Violation of Claudia out of things. Maniac's a pretty f***ing powerful debut then, isn't it?
1: Yes it is. That that's a hell that may be his his best movie.
0: I disagree with that. If if I have to go for the movies he directed, I'm going to go with uh, Maniac Cop 2 personally. I I Let's I, say I, I don't, just a, I don't think Maniac horror. is in his Maniac is not in his top with me. I
1: th- I think it's 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 weird with him because he's really good at making different films. Like I mean, he he's proven that he can do more sort of action horror with uh, you know, With Maniac Cop and Maniac Cop 2, I think he's proven that he can do straight sleazy horror with something like Maniac, which really stands on its own. He's proven that he can do really solid vigilante action with vigilante. Is honestly one of my favorite vigilante films. So I think as a filmmaker, he's really good tackling different genres and doing a really good job of them. At least in the, in the seventies and the eighties, he was not, not so much with films like Uncle Sam.
0: Well, Uncle Sam was a disappointment all around. Remember yes. when I inter- remember when we interviewed him and it was just kind of like, yeah, he was just open about, yeah, that film didn't the way it was supposed to.
1: <laughs> you can see the concept, you can see the concept of it, but I, I think it was made in the wrong time.
0: Even then, I, I think the script for Uncle Sam was the problem. Oh, that. yeah, I it, was just think stupid. It, it, it was The concept was good.
1: Yeah, it the had script an interesting concept was not. to it. It was just the execution. Exactly. It wasn't as, as gory and as sleazy as it could have been. It was really, really disgustingly slow-paced. You know, nothing really hit its mark when it should have.
0: When it comes to filmmakers, do you think it's a better average that – because in a lot of cases we talked about tonight – The first film was pretty good. Or do you think that there's a difference between, since we were specifically leaving off, doing TV work, directing episodes of TV shows, short films, or somebody that just comes in like Albert Pune, where the first thing he ever did in Hollywood at all is Thor and the Sorcerer, or something like James Cameron, where he second unit directed Galaxy of Terror, and he made short films... What do you think makes for a better first film in a case like this? Coming in dry or working your way up the ladder?
1: I think working your way up the ladder seems to be a better way to do it. I think uh, it gives you, from I guess from the examples listed, kind of keeps you consistent because you know what it's like to work in other parts of the industry, and you're slowly working your way up, and then you you make your debut, and it's kind of a smaller film, and you you build your way up. Um, I, I think that's kind of a better way to do it than than crashing out of the gates and making what's considered to be the greatest movie ever made, like with Citizen Kane? Because, you know, I mean, uh, Orson Welles was was great for a while, but then his career clearly dwindled a lot. Like, in the the twilight years of his life, he was pretty much broke, wasn't he?
0: He he was broke, and that was due to some bad decisions. Yeah. but, But Orson Welles' directing career was knocked off the rails... Part of part of it was his attitude.
1: Yeah, I think that Kane, that can be a, a, a factor too. That if you if you come out with such a good movie right off the bat, that can really boost your ego to a, a monstrous level and make you really really hard to work with because it's like, well, I'm the Citizen Kane, the Kane guy. You know, I I directed Citizen Kane. Remember,
0: but you also got to remember, Citizen Kane was a box office flop when it came out too because yeah. of the whole Hearst thing that I won't get into. Mm. That it, that that was not the greatest movie of all time then. But for some reason. And, and it depends on who you talk to. Is why I'm not saying definitively. Orson never got final cut again. That's why a lot of his films after Kane were so middle of the ground, middle of the road. Right. Because he would direct the movies and then they would be like, okay, bye. And then they would edit the films and he wouldn't have any control over the final edit. He mm. wouldn't have any control over the title. Nothing. I mean, even look at what is considered, what I consider his best movie and that's Touch of Evil, mm. which is a brilliant film.
1: Yeah, that's a really good and
0: one. And you, and you, st- and you look at still just how meddled with it was by the studio and you just kind of go, is that Orson Welles fault? That all of his later output was not as good as Kane when he didn't have control of it?
1: Yeah, not really, no.
0: You know, I mean, it would be one thing if if he had, because on Kane, he had total control. Every single frame that's on there was his call. Mm-hmm. He never had that again. Yeah. So I don't think it's his fault that Film Threat back in the 90s labeled him the ultimate loser director for blowing his wad on his first film. And I was thinking, actually guys, you're not looking at the circumstances of why all of the other films were not as good. Yeah. Because, because when you look at like Touch of Evil or, or The Fourth Man or anything, you can see the brilliance of Orson Welles trying to break out of the studio's editing you really can see it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. If if he had stayed in the editing booth I think that may have uh may have helped his career and may have helped his uh reputation continue.
0: And I, I see that's something I don't get like even with uh with Albert Pune after Radioactive Dreams his second film Albert Pune has never been involved in the editing process of a single film of his. And you just have to ask yourself why would you do that? <laughs>
1: Yeah, that doesn't make any sense.
0: Pete has not made his first film yet, but where can people find him bitching about film?
1: Ah, uh, you won't find me bitching about films. Usually you'll find me praising them. I think that's a, a misconception some people have when they go into my show at first. They wonder why I'm not uh, ripping it apart like every other, or most every other reviewer does. But, uh, yeah, you can find me gushing about the likes of William Lustig and Roger Corman and Bruno Mattai on, uh, at Cinematica on Twitter, on YouTube, The Cinemasticus, on Facebook, The Cinemasticus and on 1201beyond.com. Uh, I do have a new review out, The Adventure of Faustus Bidgood. It was that one I did bitch about a, a fair amount. But you know what? I got paid to do it, so I think that makes it fine. Sell out. Yeah. I know.
0: Well, you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
1: What you want, this is what you get. This is what you want, this is what you get. This is what you want, this is what you get. This is what you want, this is what you get. This is what you want, this is what you get. This